Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When we are exposed to bright light or when you are not exposed to bright light, that actually determines a lot of our circadian rhythm, how it is in sync with day and night cycle. So, for example, many of you may have heard uh, we need bright light, particularly blue spectrum of light or blue light that goes through our retina or eyes and then activate or synchronizes circadian clock that are present in the base of our brain to the outside world. So that means in the morning when you wake up, you go outdoor, you get that bright daylight being outdoor, even on a cloudy day, that's enough for 15 minutes to an hour. That's enough light to synchronize your brain clock with the day night cycle. I'm Doug Bopes, personal trainer, best-selling author, and entrepreneur, and I'm on a mission to help others become the best version of themselves. So I'd like to welcome you to the Adversity Advantage podcast, where we will help you use obstacles, failures, and setbacks to give you that edge needed for success. I'll be interviewing people from all walks of life on how they overcame trials and turned them into triumphs. So please sit back, relax, and get ready to be absolutely blown away by some of the wisdom and stories you're about to hear. Welcome back to another episode of the Adversity Advantage. I'm your host, Doug Bobst, and today's guest is Dr. Sachin Panda. Dr. Panda is a professor at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies and a leading expert in the fields of time-restricted feeding, circadian biology, and circadian rhythm research. Today on the show, we discuss why you should care about your circadian rhythm and the signs that your circadian clock is misaligned, how to optimize your circadian rhythm to improve sleep quality and your overall health, the science of intermittent fasting and proper techniques to fast effectively, the most beneficial times to view light and when it's best to stop viewing light, the insane benefits of following a well-structured schedule, and so much more. So let's get this conversation going and welcome Dr. Sachin Panda to the Adversity Advantage podcast. Sachin, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks so much for taking the time and for coming on. I would love to 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 get right into it. And there's a lot of talk right now about circadian rhythm and circadian biology. And a lot of people, when they talk about it, it's referring to your work and a lot of the research that you've done in your lab. But for people who aren't familiar with it, what is the circadian rhythm and why should people care so much about it in regards to their health? Yeah, so the word circadian literally means... Uh, about 24 hours, circa and the end. And uh, so that means that these are the rhythms that happen in our body um, in every 24 hours. The most obvious one is sleep. Everybody experiences it. Uh, yeah, so the most obvious circadian rhythm that we experience is sleep. And almost all of us need sleep. And we typically go to bed between say, 10 and 12 at night and then try to sleep for several hours. So just like sleep-wake cycle is circadian, similarly, almost every aspect of our body function also has rhythm, uh, which is a profound statement. But over the last 25 years, people who study circadian rhythm have found out that almost every hormone in our body, whether it's insulin or growth hormone or anything, any hormone 
that you can think of has circadian rhythm. So similarly, um, every brain chemical or neurotransmitter has its own rhythm. And every organ function, whether your gut digesting food or liver using that nutrient or your heart rate, kidney function, even our hair follicle, how much, how our hair grows on our face or other body parts, that also has circadian rhythm. So um, then the question is, why are these rhythms there and why they're important? Um, there is, there isn't one reason why these rhythms are important is um, by having these rhythms, our body can anticipate and respond appropriately to certain things. The simple example is, if you typically wake up around say 7 o'clock without an alarm, that's very important. That means your body is preparing you to wake up by increasing your heart rate, increasing breathing, and slightly a little bit of blood pressure around uh, 5 or 6 o'clock in the morning. So preparing your body to wake up. So that's why when you wake up, you're fully energetic and fully functional. And the simple experiment you can do is if you put an alarm clock and try to wake up at 6 o'clock instead of 7, use all 7, then your body is not ready. So that's anticipating you waking up and preparing your body. That's one big aspect. Um, similarly, um, when you have your first bite of food in the morning, your body is prepared, anticipating that food. Uh, so that's anticipation is one thing. Second is these rhythms help us to synchronize similar activity. Like, for example, when we eat, our gut has to digest the food, and then those nutrients have to be used up in the right way by the liver. So the liver and gut function have to be in sync for a nutrient absorption and utilization. Uh, so this is just one example. There are many examples like this to synchronize things that are similar or that depend on each other. And that brings us to another thing that's um, separate things that are incompatible with each other. So, for example, uh, when you sleep or when we sleep, our bowel movements should suppress. Otherwise, you would be sitting in our bed, <laughs> literally. So, this is another example where our digestive system, how bowel movement happens, is completely separated from sleep. So, there are many, many examples so the bottom line is these rhythms help us to stay healthy. And when these rhythms break down, um, then a body can have increased inflammation or body cannot digest and use the nutrient in the proper way. Or we can accumulate damage, including DNA damage that lead to cancer. Or our brain function is disrupted, so then we feel crappy, depressed, or have mania or ADSD, you know, many types of uh, affective disorders or emotional disorders that can also arise from circadian rhythm disruption. So would you say that the, the signs that somebody's circadian rhythm is off is a little bit of what you just mentioned, that they're fatigued, they're depressed, they're constantly feeling off, their body is out of sync. With that said, and somebody's listening to this and they're like, all right, like I've heard a lot about circadian rhythm now i understand why it's so important and now like how do i optimize my circadian rhythm so that i can function better my body can be in sync like what are if somebody's listening to this and this is their first time familiarizing themselves with this what are a few steps that somebody can take like right now to begin to optimize their circadian rhythm yeah so the good news is we all have nearly the same genetic constituent to 
make this 24-hour sadhana. So there is um, there are very few rare individuals who may not have a functional what we call clock. Um, but what is more better news is actually there are two two very important signals from our environment or from our lifestyle that affect our circadian rhythm. So number one is light. When we are exposed to bright light or when you are not exposed to bright light, that actually determines a lot of our circadian rhythm, how it is in sync with day and night cycle. Um, so for example, um, many of you may have heard, but those who haven't, that uh, we need bright light, particularly blue spectrum of light or blue light uh, that goes through our retina or eyes and then activate or synchronizes circadian clock that are present in the base of our brain to the outside world. So that means in the morning um, when you wake up, you go outdoor, you get that bright daylight. Uh, you don't have to visit, you don't have to stand under the sun, but just being outdoor, even on a cloudy day, that's enough for 15 minutes to an hour. That's enough light to synchronize your brain clock with the day-night cycle. So that means um, those of you who may be waking up in the morning and then you have your uh, curtains and windows all closed and you're getting on jumping into a Zoom call or something or you're working indoor for the first six, seven hours or maybe the entire day, then you're brain is not getting that bright daylight signal to say that this is daytime. So your circadian rhythm may be thinking that it's still a winter <laughs> night. You are just living in the night. So uh, that can, so the lack of light in the morning can reduce alertness and make you more depressed or low. So that's why the term winter blue, because in winter time, a lot of people in the extreme latitude. They don't go outside. The converse is also uh, interesting. Late at night when you are when you are active, you're watching TV or you are glued to your screen, there is enough light, blue light that's coming from your screen or from brightly lit living room or bedroom or um, all these indoor environments uh, that amount of light is also super bright to confuse our brain circadian clock. Our brain is thinking that, okay, so this may be just a long summer day or maybe this is in the middle of the day. So you may not feel sleepy and that confuses uh, our brain. So light is one. And then the other one that we talk about a lot these days is the eating and fasting. So having meal, uh, particularly breakfast at a consistent time every single day, uh, tells our body that it's daytime and it's time to eat. So our clocks in our gut, our heart, and all these clocks that are present below our brain, head, <laughs> those clocks get the signal that it is daytime and let's start um, metabolizing food, using nutrient and repairing our body, all of that. And similarly, at the end of the day, you need to stop feeding, otherwise the body gets, the clock gets confused, whether it's in the middle of the day or late afternoon. If you keep on eating, then that clock gets confused. So that's why having, just like for light, having a good bright light, nighttime dim light or darkness is very important for the brain clock. Similarly, 
eating within a consistent time window and then fasting every night or without food, staying without food. I won't say actually fasting because fasting is depriving your body of things that you that your body actually wants. But here, um, your body actually needs that rest and rejuvenation. So you're going through that. So, so the bottom line is by managing light and managing when you eat uh, or when you fast is the most powerful way to regulate almost hundreds of hormones in your, throughout your brain and body and also thousands of genes working in different organs to uh, repair, reset, rejuvenate your body and also to activate pathways that bring you to peak performance um, throughout the body. So somebody who's listening to this and now they're understanding the importance of all of this and they're saying, okay, like I got to have a good relationship with light. I have to have a great consistent eating schedule and they want, they're looking for some specific like protocols. So maybe you could share what you do, like what, what could be some examples of ways that people could get some light in the morning or maybe that, I mean, it, does it have to be outside and, and getting outdoors and then on the other side of things, like how many hours before somebody's getting ready to go to bed, should they um, should they stop using their cell phones and blue light and turn the lights off in their house and stuff like that? Yeah, so let's uh, um, talk a little bit about uh, light, what kind of light and how much light. We use our retina, our eye, to look at the outside world. At the same time, a few, almost two decades ago, we discovered that there is, there is another function of the retina that's to sense blue spectrum of light. And why, why our eye is so designed to sense blue light? Because the richest source of blue light is actually sunlight. So since we evolved on this planet for the last 200,000 years, it makes sense that we have been designed to sense this very daylight, which is the richest source of blue light, to synchronize our brain clock with the outside world. The moonlight and starlight or, you know, uh, firelight, those light give us the ability to see, to see our outside world, but they are not rich source of blue light. So that's why it's a different kind of light, blue light, that's very important for, for synchronizing our brain clock with the outside world. So then the second thing is, as you can imagine, suppose say our ancestors were in a in a night where there is a lot of lightning, bright flashes, and those flashes might disrupt our circadian rhythm. Um, so the nature actually designed this. Then they said, well, you know, those occasional flashes are not enough to reset our clock. You need actually continuous light, bright light for 15 minutes to an hour or so. That's the minimum that you need to reset this clock. So it's interesting design that. Okay, so... Uh, it's designed in a way that there's just the flashes of light in the middle of the night uh, from lightning or if you're, for example, if you're waking up to go to the bathroom and turning on some dim light or using your cell phone, for example, to walk to the bathroom, that's not enough to reset your clock. This is very important to remember because sometimes people say, hey, if I go to the bathroom, is it going to reset the clock? It doesn't. And the second thing that the uh, way it is designed is, you know, Wherever you live, it's typical that there will be at least few months, means uh, at least 50 to 100 days when you may not get full sunlight. It may be overcast day. 
So that's why it's also designed in a way that even if on a overcast day, or even if you're sitting under a tree in a full under full sunlight, there is enough light that will enough bright daylight that will reset our clock if we are outdoor for 15 to 30 sorry one hour so this is important to keep in mind so now you can see that in the morning after waking up it's very it's useful to go outdoor at least for 15 minutes to an hour which is which can be difficult for most people so then how can we redesign this habit is if you have a large window just get up open all the window curtains, even if it's winter time, <laughs> because our idea is, well, we should keep everything closed and privacy and all that stuff. Open the curtains. And then if you have your breakfast, um, have your breakfast next to a large window. Or suppose if you have a long commute, then you don't have to worry about it because uh, if you're commuting after sunrise, then even inside the car, your eye is seeing at least five to 10,000 locks of light if you are not wearing sunglasses, because if you are wearing sunglasses, then that defeats the purpose of getting enough bright daylight into your eyes. That doesn't mean that you should avoid wearing sunglasses when you are in full sunlight. You should wear them, but at least I'm talking about being inside a car when the uh, when sun is not at the horizon, um, you still get enough light. So now, coming back to the other side, flip side is in the evening. So although our eyes are not, uh, although this blue light sensing mechanism is not super sensitive, but still what is happening these days is we have, means in the history of human life, only in the past 20 to 50, 20 to 40 years, I would say, we have so many glowing objects, whether it's television or it's now cell phone or tablets or laptops. Um, those glowing objects are very close to our eyes. So that means we are getting a lot of light from these devices. And these devices, which look, even if they're looking white, blank screen, uh, or if you're looking at any images, they do have enough of this blue light that they may be coming in drifts. But then if you look at it, stare at it um, long enough, then that can also disrupt our circadian rhythm um, so that's why the idea is you should limit exposure to this bright blue light or bright device, devices that are bright at least two to three hours before going to bed. So then the question is, okay, so how we just cannot stop using our <laughs> devices, then what do we do? So a few rule of thumb is, well, at least avoid going to brightly lit places two to three hours before going to bed. So those places are a drugstore grocery stores and those stores or Walmart or many department stores, retail stores, usually in those stores, the bright blue LED lights that give you this very nice white light, uh, they're very rich in blue light. And if you just spend there 15 minutes to an hour or so, you might experience that you are more alert. And that's why they want you there. They want you to be alert so that you can go and spend more time shopping. So uh, so one thing is avoid going to those places. And second, if you're at home, then avoid having this bright blue LED light at home. Means you can either use a dimmer to reduce, make them dim, or you can simply select light sources that are little orange light. So if you go to um, your purchase this LED light, you can always ask, at least in the US and in many Western countries, 
the LED lights are now coming in two or three different flavors. And one is a little bit orange color and you can buy them. And I was just in uh, India and I couldn't actually find those orange color LEDs. <laughs> so there are many countries where uh, the only option is blue LED light. And in those cases, be careful. Don't light up your um, your living room or bedroom with this bright blue LED. Then the second thing is um, almost all cell phones and tablets that do have this night shift or night light feature. Uh, so that means you can, when you turn it on and set a time, uh, say for example, eight or nine o'clock in the evening, uh, for me it's nine o'clock in the evening, uh, all these devices will dim down and will also do a spectral shift or change the color of the screen to more like orange color. And that reduces blue light. So these are some of the things that anybody can do uh, to reduce exposure to blue light so that uh, a circadian clock is in trend and also a nightly hormone melatonin that helps us to sleep also rises, uh, begin to rise two to three hours before we go to bed so that when we hit the bed, we already have enough melatonin to help us go to sleep. So this is all about light. And then uh, the other flip side is food. And this is uh, where this popular term intermittent fasting, time restricted eating or fasting, uh, all of these converse. And then the principle there is few things. One is uh, when we eat, there is a strong surge of many hormones, um, insulin, for example, and also surge of glucose and many nutrients that, that crank up. And those nutrients and hormones also tell our circadian clock that, hey, this is the beginning of the day when uh, this person actually had the first meal. And why this is important is um, in the next day, the body should be prepared to get that first bite of food well digested and the nutrient absorbed. Because when we eat, it's a huge, huge process that many organs have to come together to digest that food. Uh, before even we eat, uh, gut has to have gut has to be prepared to get a rush of food and also rush of acids and digestive enzymes to break down that food. So the body has to prepare for that. A blood circulation also has to redirect itself so that the nutrient get absorbed from the gut and sent to the liver. The liver has to be ready. So all these anticipatory activities. Uh, our clock regulator or circadian regulator. So that's why having breakfast around the same time, give up, give or take another 30 minutes or total one hour window uh, is very important that our body is prepared to digest and assimilate nutrient. Then at the end of the day, what happens is you may be ending your food, say at seven o'clock in the evening, although your mouth stopped chewing the food and swallowing it, your stomach actually takes up to five hours to digest that food and pass it on to the small intestine where, again, some more nutrient absorption will occur. So that means, although you stopped eating, your stomach is not fasting. <laughs> it's still full of food for the next five hours. And um, then the question is, well, why can't you eat again after five hours when the stomach is empty or six hours? The point is the stomach also has to repair itself. Just imagine if you cook something in a bowl, then 
you got to clean that and wash it and dry it so similarly the stomach lining gets uh, damaged during digestion process and then the stomach lining uh, has to be repaired every night um, it's only we're just talking about stomach lining but many of our organs get damaged our kidney our liver many cells our body gets damaged a lot during daytime activity and they have to be repaired in fact we we recycle almost uh, 40 to 50% of our cells in every few days or months so that means every day we are recycling a lot of our cells and that happens when we are resting or when our, when we don't have food in our system so that's why having another you add 5 hours of stomach emptying and then give another 7 to 8 hours of repair so then you get another around 12 to 16 hours of fasting is enough to give your organs some rest so that they can repair rejuvenate and be ready for the next round of food that we'll be eating next day uh, so this is how the feeding and fasting cycle is important and then the question is when should you start eating when should you stop eating and how does it relate to the circadian clock so th- in this context there are we can talk about only two hormones one is a stress hormone cortisol um we know that in the when you get stressed then there is this stress hormone cortisol that goes up and lot of people lot of us know that the stress hormone is not good when you have lot of stress hormone eating and stress hormones don't go well because our body is not ready or prepared to digest and use that nutrient well and many of us may not know that the highest amount of stress hormone that we experience is actually within an hour after waking up it's so high that even for the rest of the day in the late afternoon suppose say you go for a 100 meter sprint still you may not get as much stress hormone as you get just after waking up so that means we should not be eating right after waking up within an hour or two of waking up the second hormone is melatonin and for most of us almost all of us uh, melatonin levels begin to rise 2 to 3 hours before we habitually go to bed so that means every day if you are going to bed at say 11 o'clock or midnight then your melatonin levels begin to rise say at 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening and this melatonin we know that melatonin helps us to sleep um so just like it makes our brain to sleep well uh, only in the last 10 to 15 years scientists have figured out that this same melatonin also makes our pancreas to sleep so that means our pancreas which is very important for blood glucose regulation because when we eat almost every food that we eat has some sugar or carbohydrate that leads to a small spike in blood glucose and that spike in blood glucose triggers insulin production and release from pancreas and when melatonin levels begin to rise it actually slows down pancreas so that even though it is sensing blood glucose it's not rushing out insulin it's just producing insulin uh, in a drip so as a result eating late at night very close to bedtime can keep our blood glucose level higher for longer time and just like it takes 2 to 3 hours before we wake up 
melatonin levels begin to rise. Similarly, after we wake up, it can take one to two hours for melatonin levels to go down. And the good news is actually in the morning when you're exposed to bright daylight, then that light helps our natural melatonin that our body produces to go down much faster. So that means if you if you wake up and then go outdoor, take a morning walk or go, if you have a garden, watch your um, plants or take the dog out for a walk or whatever you're doing in the morning, outdoor, that's also accelerating this melatonin to go down. So this combination of this melatonin story and the uh, cortisol uh, or the stress hormone can give you an idea that, yes, it's not ideal time to eat two to three hours before bedtime or one to two hours after waking up. So this will help you to figure out how many hours, what is the safe window? So the safe window is somewhere, uh, say, one to two hours after waking up up to two to three hours before going to bed. So that's the safe window within which we can eat. And then some people say, well, I'm not feeling hungry in the morning. Maybe I'll not eat until noon, although I'm waking up at six or seven in the morning. And then some people start eating, say, an hour or two after waking up. And then they say, well, I'm okay. I can control myself. I can stop eating at six. And they do that. So this is where a lot of questions are still there, whether it's healthier to what is more healthy. Um, even if you start to or your target to eat, say, within 8 to 10 hours, and suppose, say, you're waking up at 7 o'clock in the morning, should you start at 8 or 9 in the morning and then count 8 to 10 hours? Or should you wait till, say, noon or 1 o'clock in the afternoon and count 8 to 10 hours to eat. Um, frankly, there is no decisive study in humans that have said that one is better than the other, significantly better than the other. Means there are some studies saying one might be slightly better than the other. But here, in the pursuit of perfection, don't try to give up what is good enough for you because um, what you can do right now is much better than pursuing for the perfection. There are a few things that we have to keep in mind. When we look at this data, because our lab actually does many studies in mice and also in humans, we do have an academic app called My Circadian Clock that is free for anyone to download and use. And when they use, they're actually sharing their useful information with the scientists and we don't use any identifiable information. We are not using it for marketing or making money or <laughs> pushing any advertisement. Um, but what we are seeing is those who start eating earlier in the day and stop, say, at 6 or 7 in the evening or 8 o'clock in the evening, and then they're going to bed, say, 3 or 4 hours after the last meal, uh, they have slightly different food choices than people who eat, start eating, say, at 12 or 1 in the afternoon and then go till 9 or 10, 11 at night. Because what happens is, we are social animals. We tend to eat, many of us, few, few, few may be eating alone, but many of us, we eat together It's a, in a social setting, whether with your friends or family. And um, then your chance of consuming alcohol and consuming sugary dessert is much higher if, you're, if your window is late into the night. And that's what we see in many of our studies. 
um, whereas it's much easier to control because, you know, you, you cannot drink too much <laughs> alcohol if you're stopping at six o'clock. And even if you have a glass of wine or something, then that's not going to affect your sleep as much as if you had a glass of wine close to your bedtime. And we do see in one specific studies on firefighters, what we found was firefighters who, not all firefighters drink alcohol, but few of them who used to have some beer or wine on off days, not on, not when they're working, uh, to be very clear, uh, on the off days, when they adopt a 10 hours time window and then they stop eating, say, before 8 o'clock, we saw a significant reduction in their alcohol intake. It just helped us. There's not enough time to drink and they just could not keep drinking till midnight. So this is a good side effect, I can say, that you reduce your alcohol intake and also you reduce your dessert intake, sugar intake, if your window is ending, say, before 8 o'clock in the evening. There might be people like listening to this and they're like, all right, you know, I've experimented with intermittent fasting, haven't been able to make it work, or I'm trying to be more consistent with my diet and when I eat, but you know, I'm having a hard time, or maybe there's people that are already doing these things and trying to take it to the next level. What do you think is more important? Is it the consistency in the time that you eat each and every day, or is it the time you go without food? Yeah, so as I said, the first bite of the day or the first time you're eating something that has substantial amount of calorie, then that is the biggest trigger for the circadian clock to be synchronized. So that's one important thing. And then the number of hours you're going without food, uh, that helps. But at the same time, we have to keep few things in mind. So for example, somebody who is a bodybuilder or is a guy who is actually into sports, swimming or anything. So they have to consume a huge amount of food just to sustain that high level of activity. And when they start doing intermittent fasting or timeless eating, whatever you call it, and uh, they're trying, say, eight hours, they may not have enough time to consume enough food to sustain that high level of activity. So in that case, 10 hours is good. And in fact, we have seen that in mice and also in humans, once you achieve your optimum health state, um, if you have been eating within 12 hours consistently and a healthy food, that itself is very beneficial. And here is something that almost everybody says that, well, I eat everything within 12 hours. We actually did an objective study. We asked people to take a picture of every single food or drinks, even water, whatever they're eating or drinking, take a picture of everything. And then we figure out whether it's water or not. We discount those or Diet Coke, for example, has less than five kilocal of uh, calories. So we discount those ones. Um, and then if we look at food that has more than, say, five kilocalorie of um, energy, then what we find is less than 10% of people consistently eat within the 12, 12 hours window at least for a week. So you might be thinking that you're eating within 12 hours, but then the occasional snacking that happens outside that window does come. So I would say that... Um, Almost anyone from 10-year-old to 100-year-old can, if they're having healthy diet, they can still eat within 12 hours if they can control their calories and the quality of food, and they will still be okay. But then if you're trying to improve your health, 
um, then try targeting say 10 hours to begin with. And then if you still want to reduce weight, of course, if you don't have any other underlying condition, for example, hypoglycemia, type 1 diabetes, other conditions, then you may try to go down to 8 hours. Um, I'll give you an example of like real life situation. I, I know a friend who is very uh, accomplished person in mid 40s, figured out that he is um, clinically obese because he was hitting almost BMI of 30 and um, triglyceride levels were high, cholesterol levels were high and he had a choice that he could have gone taken a prescription to lose weight and reduce cholesterol. But then he said, this is almost like giving up the control over my body to some medication. So let me try doing time restricting or intermittent fasting. So he tried. He started with, say, 10 hours time restricting. It took him a couple of weeks just to get used to this habit because, you know, everybody has busy life. And the reason why we are in an unhealthy state is because we have some bad habit, whether eating randomly or eating bad food or anything, for many, many years. The body is used to it. So changing that habit is always difficult. Difficult doesn't mean impossible. Difficult doesn't mean that your body will revolt. Uh, if you accept that, yes, if you build that mindset that you are ready to take this toughness, to take this adversity or difficulty for one or two weeks, your body can also get used to eating within 10 hours. So that's what he did. 10 hours, he went for two to three months and then he lost some weight and his triglyceride levels improved a little bit, but then it was not improving as much as he would have anticipated. And then he started, since he felt that he could control the timing of food, the next step for him was, okay, so if I can control timing, I can also control the quality of food that I'm eating. So he switched from random eating of anything to any junk food or anything to actually eating more balanced diet, more fruits and vegetables, more fibers, because that's also important. And um, within 10 hours, and then he switched to eight hours. And it helped. Again, he lost a lot of weight and then triglyceride and cholesterol levels also improved. And then finally he said, well, if I can, if I can eat within eight hours, why not I go to four hours? So <laughs> he actually did four hours for a month or two. Of course, he saw a lot of benefits, but at the same time, you know, he became a little cranky. So because his hangriness came up, and it was not good for the family because a lot of conflict. Means this is where he said, "Well, if I were living alone, if I didn't have a family, I would do it." Because he was seeing a lot of improvement, but he again dialed back to say six to eight hours and with the right diet, it could completely um, reverse his high triglyceride, high cholesterol, his now BMI 25. So he went from BMI 30 to BMI 25. Of course, it was a very long journey, one year, one and a half year to go to lose that much of uh, body weight and improve. But at the same time, during this journey, he also realized he has much better relationship with his food, with his body. And then he realized that he had a lot of um, joint problem when he had this huge amount of weight. So now the joints are much better. So he started walking and then running. And in fact, now he loves running. So the point is, once you start time-restricted eating, 
since you're just paying attention to timing and we know that our lifestyle is quality quantity and timing of food or nutrition physical activity and sleep so there are nine different factors and the easiest one for many people is to control timing and once you have control over timing then you feel it gives you that extra confidence boost that hey if i can decide when i should start eating when i should stop eating maybe i can decide also what and how much i should eat and that's something that mindset is something that we see in some people that they have that mindset that they can use it and going through that fast step gives them that boost uh, confidence boost and also the mindset that they can now work on other aspects and then once they lose weight particularly those who start with very heavy weight uh, they also realize that another benefit of time restricting is actually better sleep many people report that they were not sleeping well and now they're sleeping better and that makes sense because your stomach is not digesting food when you're sleeping and when you're digesting food a blood circulation goes to the stomach to absorb all these nutrients and blood means warm so that means your core body temperature is warm and you cannot get good quality sleep so it makes sense that when they do time restricting or intermittent fasting they sleep better so now once you sleep better then you're more energetic in the morning throughout the day you are also feeling more energetic and one of the side effects good side effects of time restricted eating intermittent fasting is reduction in inflammation and our joints are stiff we feel pain in our joint because that's a sign of inflammation and when it goes down then you're more likely to also take it one step further and say well now i can go for a walk i can go for a run and even personally i was 20 pounds heavier than what i am right now <laughs> and i know that at that time uh, like 12 years ago when we started this study when i when i saw the mice losing weight and getting more a lot and their their endurance almost doubled their motor coordination improved then i said well i can learn something from my little mice so <laughs> i started and i remember there is a 5 mile uh track around a lake here miramar lake i thought that i could never run around miramar lake five miles <laughs> because i did have stiff joints and i had some mild joint pain and then slowly i started walking and i actually walked five miles miramar lake and then speed walking and then jogging and then and and also another thing is when you start doing this you also attract people who are like minded and this is some social aspect of health that if we are obese and eating junk food then you will attract people or friends who are also overweight and they like junk food and go drink more and when you become healthier then you also attract people who are more healthier so that creates this synergy to improve your health so when i started running around this lake then i found other people who were running around the lake and then they would sign me up for some 5k run or 10 miles run or something like that so the point is once you start once you decide to once your mindset is to improve your health then time restricting is one simple thing for many people that they can start because it's just two time that they have to keep in mind when they're starting when they're stopping and once they control that then everything else falls into its right place 
so what I'm hearing you say for the for the average person, like you you mentioned, your friend, you know, had a family and wanted to make sure he was also nourishing his relationships while improving his health. And with that said, like for the person who might have a family, they might have a active social life, busy professional life. They can get a lot of benefit from, like you said, just having that like eight to 12 hour window in which they eat, eating an hour or two after they wake up, stopping eating a few hours before they go to bed. And then just being consistent with that, from what I understand, will get them a long way, correct? Yes, that's the first step. And from there, you mentioned one of the benefits of fasting is reduction in inflammation. You hear a lot about autophagy and other things as it relates to like longevity. Are those benefits due to the fasting in itself? Or is it because fasting and time-restricted eating, you know, helps you lose weight and the weight loss is what reduces the inflammation and increases autophagy and stuff like that. Yeah. So th this is a important uh, point that uh, we always think that being healthy is weight loss, <laughs> which is not necessarily true because in many of our time restricting studies, which are 12 to 16 weeks typically, uh, because that's how long it takes to see some effect. What we see is there are many people who don't lose weight substantially, but they improve their blood pressure, they improve their blood sugar and cholesterol levels substantially. So weight loss is not necessary for, to see the impact of time restricting. And the animal experiments are very clear because that's where we can go and sample many tissues, uh, which is almost impossible to do in human studies. So now coming back to whether the fasting is important or what is going on. Uh, since we can do these experiments in animals and can sample different types of tissues at different time of the day, we did a very thorough study. So this is the most thorough study ever done in time-restricting intermittent fasting where we put mice on time-restricting, nine hours feeding, 15 hours fasting, um, for very few days because you don't want to keep the mice on this for a long time because the benefits can confuse the outcome. And then in every uh, two hours, we sampled 22 different brain regions and peripheral organs like heart, liver, kidney, uh, adrenal gland, uh, stomach. Uh, you can name anything we sampled it. And then we looked at each of 20,000 genes that are very similar between human and mice, how they turn on or when they turn on and turn off throughout this 24 hours period. So out of this 24 hours, the mice were eating for nine hours and fasting for 15 hours. So that means we had multiple time points during the feeding time, multiple time points during the fasting time. So it's massive amount of data, as you can imagine, 20,000 genes, many, many mice, many, many time points. And then we put that into uh, algorithms and analysis pipeline. And then we ask which genes are turning on, what time, whether in the feeding phase or fasting phase. And then we can go back and say, are they related to autophagy? Are they related to DNA repair or proteostasis, how the proteins are folded, or mitochondria function, all of this, any question that you can think of. So now, connecting what you asked with what we found, Many people, not all, are familiar with this idea that aging 
disrupts many things. One is mitochondria function. Mitochondria is the energy producer of our body. So the mitochondria, when the quality goes down or the numbers go down or the function um, is disrupted, then we can age. Um, then you mentioned autophagy, which is a body's natural recycling process where our cells can eat up damaged parts and then recycle them. And uh, the DNA damage repair, every day we accumulate many mutations in our DNA. And if it's not repaired, then we can get cancer. Um, similarly, protein or proteostasis, which is proteins make up enzymes. And the enzymes help us to digest food, do many, many things in our body. And those enzymes, you can think of almost, you can take a, um, the enzymes are almost like lock and keys. So if those lock and keys are not properly folded, properly manufactured, then they cannot function well. So this, there are like nine hallmarks or now 12 or 13 hallmarks of aging. And what we found was this time-restricted feeding in animals improved or reversed at least eight to nine out of these 12 or 13 hallmarks of aging. So that means the autophagy level went up slightly towards the end of the fasting cycle. Similarly, you can imagine that the fat burning also went up towards the end of the fasting cycle and fat gets burnt or broken down to ketone bodies. So your people are mad about ketogenesis so that means timeless eating or intermittent fasting naturally boosts, increases ketone level uh, towards the end of the fasting. So you can connect all of this, many of this to the fasting phase. But what was surprising was many of the repair mechanisms, whether it's DNA damage repair or the protein folding so that our enzymes are healthy, all of these repair mechanisms are actually turned on after the mice ate which makes sense because repair requires a lot of energy, a lot of building materials. And unless you eat, you cannot spend that time and energy towards repair. I would say that not everything is connected to the fasting phase alone. Uh, the fasting fo followed by feeding creates the right environment for many repair processes to start. And what about somebody who their schedule changes. Like I have a lot of parents who listen to my podcast and they're listening to everything that we've been discussing about the circadian rhythm and staying in a, in a consistent schedule and getting exposed to light in the morning and then um, not being so exposed to it in the evening and, we, and everything that we talked about with fasting and time-restricted eating. But yet like summer comes and kids are home, schedules change, or they maybe are expecting another baby and then that throws a, a wrench in things. So what's the process like for somebody who maybe their schedule isn't consistent throughout the year? Like how can they still like optimize and utilize everything that we're talking about? Yeah, so this is a, this is a challenge. <laughs> Everybody faces that, including me. And uh, the point is if you try to be consistent, um, at least during the school year or even during summer, one thing is if this is a good time for if you are healthy, if you are following timeless eating or uh, intermittent fasting and all these healthy habits, then it's also good to teach your children uh, all these habits. And this is important because now we are seeing that the children are reporting very high level of anxiety, depression, um, 
mental health is really poor among many middle sorry adolescent and college students and you know we all talk about stress anxiety all this stuff but we don't pay attention to whether these kids are sleeping enough whether they are getting outdoor whether they are actually seeing daylight <laughs> and whether they are going through this overnight fasting because when they are what we have told our children and what the children are also getting the message that they're getting is they have to eat constant, constantly for their brain to function i mean you see you go to college campuses and you see people are actually chugging energy drinks in the evening or late at night to keep themselves awake late into the night now what happens they lose sleep and there is enough evidence now that losing sleep can trigger depression anxiety and many brain disorders and so i think it's important that we teach all these healthy habits to our children and you might say that well 5 year old 10 year old they cannot do intermittent fasting i agree so that's why i say that they should at least eat within 12 hours to begin with because anyway the children have to sleep for 8 to 9 hours that almost everybody agrees and one to two hours before going to bed you bed them and then even toddlers you are telling them stories or if they are little grown up they should be reading something or listening to music or quieting down their brain before going to bed and similarly after waking up they should have at least one hour before they have breakfast so everybody every family should at least the baseline should be 12 hours without food and within that 12 hours without food children after teenagers should be sleeping or should be in bed for 9 hours and then the adults can be in bed for 8 hours so now coming to yes when you are expecting a baby sleep is disrupted and even after having a baby um, you know 3.5 million women are becoming moms every day in the US and when they become mom then of course they have to feed and they have to wake up so many times and this is where and they are almost like shift workers they are actually worse than shift workers because you know firefighters they may be doing 12 hour shift eh, sorry 24 hour shift but they do have days off the new moms don't get days off at that time then the point is can they at least practice some of the other aspects other than feeding fasting for example exposure to light there is this idea of postpartum depression a lot of women go through that Uh, after childbirth but at the same time we have to ask well are they going through postpartum depression because they're not getting enough exposure to daylight because daylight is the best antidepressant and we know that once you are kind of waking up three four times to take care of the baby at night time then you are really sleepy during daytime and then you have to do a lot of stuff and if you're working then you are just rushing from one thing to another and you may not get enough time to sleep or to get daylight so in this case it's very important to at least have catch up sleep in the weekend or whenever you have time and also to get some daylight hour and so that's why i say well don't strive for perfection whatever you can do for managing light managing sleep managing food at least one or two of them Uh, anybody can do in any schedule 
and when the schedule changes yes we have seen that in mice and also in humans when people do 8 to 10 hours of eating say within the week and then go to 10 to 12 hours in the weekend they still get many benefits and uh, so that's why don't just stay fixated that if you if you eat outside your window for one or two days uh, you are out of the island that's not true <laughs> you can still be getting many benefits you see a lot of people over the years that have talked about that when you fast you should wait until lunch or in the afternoon to start your day and quote unquote break your fast and throughout our discussion you've mentioned that really it's not the case like for the average person the most important thing you can do is just pay attention to your eating window and making sure that you're eating an hour or two after you wake up and Along those same lines, a lot of people have, they refer back to your work when they're saying things like fasting and time-restricted eating. I'm not, so, I'm not sure how much you are online and what you see, but are there any misconceptions out there about your work that you see that you're just like, you know what, that's, that's not what my research says? Well, the thing is, there are many things that I, we haven't answered. So the question that you posed, like uh, there are many people who are quote unquote, they will say they're skipping breakfast, but they're actually having breakfast, say, at noon or one o'clock in the afternoon. And then the question is, is that good or bad? And my answer is yes, we haven't actually, we haven't seen a definitive human clinical study that has said that is good or bad. And what we know is this, that our hunger is circadian. So and then the interesting thing is we don't know why our hunger has a peak in the late afternoon, early evening. So it's true that a lot of people don't feel hungry in the morning because the hunger hormones and the hunger mechanism actually reaches its peak in late afternoon. So that's why a lot of people feel that it's easier for them to skip the early morning meal and delay that until noon or one o'clock. And at the same time, what we're finding is these are the people who may be high-functioning people who have to go for dinner with business partners or uh, they have a very active social life. So they, they have to go eat with somebody, say, after 7 or 8 in the evening. So for them, it makes sense that they can start at 12 or 1 or even 2 o'clock and then go till 8 or 9. And... What is important in that case is they should give them at, give themselves at least two to three hours between the last meal and when they're going to bed. And in fact, these days, if you look at what time people are going to bed, a lot of us are actually going to bed around 11 or 12. So if you're finishing at 8, you still have solid two to three hours before going to bed. Uh, you have that gap, that's healthy gap between your uh, last meal and bed. So I would say there's nothing nothing right or wrong. I would always say in the pursuit of perfection, don't give up what is good enough. <laughs> yeah. No, I just didn't know that, you know, because there is a lot of people because you're, you know, you are the pioneer in all this stuff, you know, and a lot of people will point back to your research online when they're talking about intermittent fasting and stuff like that. So I was just curious to see if you've seen anything where, people might quote your work or quote your lab, but you look at it, you're like, no, that's not exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, there are a few things like, for example, there is this one meal a day and then um, really reducing calorie and doing a lot of physical activity. I know there is a good 
proportion of people out there who are normal weight to begin with or they may be slightly overweight and they're trying to lose a lot of weight so they're doing time restricting or one meal a day where they are significantly reducing their calories it's it's obvious that you cannot cram like 2000 plus kilocal in a in a single meal every single day and on top of that if they are physically active say running 5 miles they have a fitbit that's telling or a wearable that is saying that you should target 5 miles of running and then what happens is the body can um, go into i won't say starvation mode but a different state where what we call relative energy deficit syndrome where we're actually spending more energy and eating less and it's not that you are sedentary you are actually highly active um, almost athletic in that case you may experience um, some neuroendocrine dysfunction for example for women the telltale sign is they can become amenorrheic um they lose their menstrual cycle and that happens in some athletes and they may have more anxiety and depression so these are some of the things that people have to pay attention to just don't go too extreme where you are doing time restricting reducing calorie intake and at the same time increasing your physical activity too much and um for women premenopausal women if you're seeing that you are losing your period then yes it's better to crank that down and <laughs> either become less active or eat a little bit more last question i have uh, pertains to sleep we've talked about sleep throughout the conversation and i've heard you say that time restricted eating getting your circadian rhythm in check um optimizing your relationship with with light all of these things can help improve your quality of of sleep anything else you'd recommend outside of some of the stuff we talked about today that if somebody is just really having trouble falling and staying asleep and they're just looking for something quick that maybe they could implement into their daily routine that they could try to pick up on yeah so another thing that we didn't talk about is caffeine um uh, whether it's tea coffee diet coke energy drinks even dark chocolate all of these have um chemicals that keep us awake we are built slightly differently because some people would say well i can have a tea before bedtime and then i can still sleep um of course you may be still sleeping but try avoiding caffeine tea diet coke or any energy drinks say 10 hours before your habitual bedtime or you can roughly say after after your lunch time no or 1 o'clock or 2 o'clock no caffeine and that substantially improves sleep in many many people I means there are a lot of people they always complain about sleep and then the first thing i ask when is their last tea or coffee or green tea many things that have this active component so that's one and then then the usual advice that people get uh, cooler bedroom and then um, taking a shower before sleep um, not eating for 2 to 3 hours before bedtime that's a huge because for example i cannot sleep if i have food right before bedtime i would sleep but then i would wake up after some time So these are the usual stuff and another thing that people don't talk about is um don't sleep with your uh pets in the same room because many pets are uh, nocturnal for example cats are nocturnal dogs have very thin sleep so they they will wake up they'll wake you up 
and snoring partner can be a problem. <laughs> they can wake you up. So there are so many things that can go wrong when it comes to sleep. Just listen to all these other advice, but uh, caffeine is something that many people don't pay attention to. What about alcohol? Yeah, alcohol too. I mean, so alcohol doesn't help you to sleep. Maybe you may fall asleep, but then your sleep quality is really terrible. And then uh, for many people, what I hear is they wake up. If they have alcohol, they will. They may fall asleep, but then after two to three hours or four hours, they wake up. And the quality of sleep is not that good. So anything other than food <laughs> is not helping you. Whether it's one extreme alcohol, the other extreme is caffeine. Well, Sachin, I wanted to thank you so much for your time and for sharing all of your expertise, your your research and your knowledge. I think the audience is going to get a lot out of this. If people want to learn more about your work and your research at your lab, or they want to download the app that you mentioned, or perhaps purchase your books, where do they do that? Yeah, so I have written at least two books now. One is my uh, the Circadian Code. It has been translated to 12 or 13 different languages now. And then the second one that we published uh, three years ago is the circadian diabetes code, so which is focused entirely on managing blood glucose. Uh, so those are the two um, highly popular books. And uh, sometimes I'm active on Twitter. Sorry, I'm too busy with the research that. <laughs> Uh, and then our lab website, mycircadianclock.org, that's where people can download the app or learn more about circadian rhythm. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure to include the links to that stuff in the show notes. So Sachin, uh, thank you so much once again for coming on. Thank you and have a perfect circadian day. Thank you.